Hello and welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. My name is Patrick and I am sick. So right off the bat, I want to apologize for my voice. You're going to hear it a little bit now. And then also as we get into my interview today with Tyler, we recorded this episode a few days ago. I thought I was getting better and it turns out my cold was just, I guess, ramping up to uh, get worse. Um, so I do apologize for that, but hopefully by next week, I'll, it'll all be cleared up and I will be right as rain. So we're going to make today's intro pretty short and sweet. We're going to start off by thanking our newest patrons that have signed up since last episode. So today we'd like to thank Angela Freeman, Christopher Grady, Brad Langford, David Boswell, Derek Bowers, Jared Foster, Sally Turner, Brian Anderson, Lauren Davis, Aaron Wood, Josh Spears, Kyle Johnson, Pat Smith, Brian Arfman, Peter Stewart, Luke Galloway, Nick Doyle, Bobby Ellis, and Casey Hockmoot. And I need to give Casey a special shout out because she has single-handedly solved the name pronunciation problem that I tend to face. When she signed up as a patron, in parentheses, she wrote her name out in the phonetical spelling of her name to make it easy on me. So that's a pro tip. If you want to help make it a little bit easier for me to get your name right, yeah, just include the phonetic spelling of your name in parentheses next to your name, and hopefully I'll be able to get it right. Today, we've got a special guest from my friends over at Rock Guys. Jen Weeks is here to tell us about a new product. But Jim, before we get to this new product, why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do over at Rockgeist? Hey there, uh, I'm Jen. I do many things at Rockgeist, just like all of us do. Lots of makers um, making it all happen. There's seven of us and I send out the final products, essentially. I do a lot of the shipping and I dress up the frame bags after they've been sewn by Jess and get those out to all the customers. And I'm working on some top two bag parts and yeah, just, you know, trying to make it all happen. And it's kind of cool. And I've been here since March, so it's kind of new and fresh and um, it's exciting. Yeah, since March, wow, yeah. congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> now, this new product, it's called the Wishbone, right? Yes. So why don't you tell me what it is and, and why do I want one? Basically, um, it's a metal bracket, it's U-shaped, and it bolts to one of the seat tube water bottle bolts, and it supports the side of the frame bag from the outside. So basically, it's an exoskeleton for the frame bag, positioned low where the crank arm rotates. It prevents the bag from ballooning out and rubbing the crank. Uh, okay. So when do frame bags actually balloon out that wide that they would rub the cranks? I've actually only run half frame bags. So this isn't a problem that I've personally run into. So maybe you can explain when that might happen. It's more the full frame bags. When they're carrying large water bladders at the bottom of the frame bag, the bladders are heavy enough. They force the sides of the frame bag outwards towards the crank. Okay, but there are the internal dividers, right, that most frame bags have that would that would kind of serve the same purpose, maybe? Yeah, definitely. Uh, but they also limit the size of the water bladder that can be used because they need to connect the drive side and the non-drive side fabric panels together 
Dividers are awesome, but the space they kill inside the bag can be extremely frustrating. The wishbone allows you to leave the bag wide open on the inside and while still protecting the area right next to your crank arm. I get it. I like it. Yeah. It's the wishbone. Yeah. We're all wishing for something, right? Right now we're wishing that our bags would stop hitting our cranks, I think. <laughs> yeah, for real. No holes. <laughs> <laughs> so when is this product going to be available and where can people find out more information? The Wishbone is available now at rockice.com on the Universal Gear page. Well, listen, Jen, thanks for coming on today and telling us about the new product. It was nice to talk to you. What do you have left for the rest of your day? What are you doing over there at Rockgeist? Finishing up some top two bags. Got to get some shipping done. And like I said, I'm dressing up some frame bags this afternoon so, so that customers can get them on their bikes and get out on their adventures. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jen. Get to it and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. So good to talk to you for the first time. Wonderful. I think you're doing cool stuff. Oh, thank you. Y'all are too. Cool. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Have a good one. All right. Today's episode is one that I've been personally looking forward to for a while. Tyler Wacker is a local Texan and many of you may not know him. And that is okay because there's a lot of people out there doing really radical stuff on their bikes. And Tyler is definitely one of them. His story is well worth sharing. And I'm so grateful that I had a chance to sit down and catch up with him. He's currently back in the United States taking a break in between semesters at college in Iceland. And he's got a really unique story. Went to school to improve the active transportation situation in our country and wound up getting a little bit fed up with it, quitting his job, cycling around America, and then ending up in Iceland doing some really cool stuff for cycling and tourism there in Iceland. So it was really great to be able to catch up with him in Austin in between his semesters. And I definitely learned a lot on this episode and I uh, hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Thanks again, Tyler, for coming on the show. Without further ado, let's have Miles Arbor take it away with the Bikes for Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Or death. Bikes. Or death. Podcast. So why don't we just start out by uh, saying who you are? Yeah. Uh, so I'm Tyler Wacker. I'm actually from a small town south of Houston called Bay City, Texas. Um, so I lived 26 years of my life in Texas, went to school for civil engineering, um, and then worked in Dallas and Fort Worth until I moved to California in 2017. And mainly that was a career-minded move because I found a way through civil engineering to work on bicycle projects, uh, like bike lanes and alternative transportation or active transportation, rather. And so basically, yeah, I, f I just found out that Texas wasn't prioritizing or funding a lot of it, at least in like the Dallas area back in that time period. Um, and so then I got an opportunity to transfer within my company to Oakland, California to work primarily on bicycle and public transit projects. 
basically, yeah, I was working in the San Francisco Bay Area up until 2020 when I kind of realized that I wanted to do something different with my life. And so I ended up quitting my life as a transportation engineer to bike around the perimeter of of America is what it originally started out to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I left in January of 2020. And of course, COVID changed my plans uh, once it hit in March but yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah. I want to start out with uh, us both being from Texas. This is the first time we've had a chance to meet. Do you remember who our mutual friend was? I know there was a mutual friend that... Uh, Drew Eckelberger. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Drew. Yeah, man. This this community is so tight-knit. Yeah, You're going to yeah, go yeah. have drinks with Aaron Chamberlain yeah, after this, who's also been on the, on the podcast. So yeah, every time I come, it's, and last time I was here, I was interviewing Jessica Alexander, and she was friends with Aaron, and I guess everybody's just, you know, we're right, in the yeah. tight cycling community, yeah, tight community. But coming from Texas, going to Southern California, was it, did you have this like pretty grandiose idea of how amazing it was going to be? Um, so I was living in San Francisco, and yeah, I mean, uh, I moved for like personal reasons, but also a career helped, helped me move to. And really, I just wanted to find a lifestyle that I'd always always been kind of searching for, just like getting rewarded to live a smaller lifestyle. And so like here in Texas, you don't necessarily like, um, there's so much space and like the housing is so big and everything. And like there's micro units here in Austin, but like they're still just as expensive as like regular apartments. But at least in terms of housing, like living in Oakland, I live in like closet sized spaces and then still like have affordable rent uh, as compared to like, you know, paying upwards of whatever, a couple of thousands of dollars. Where did this there. like idea come from? It's something that I personally uh, resonates with me with simply like the less you have to maintain, the less you have to spend your money on, you're not working for those things. You know, you're kind of a slave to them. They kind of own you in a sense, right? But it took me many, many years to figure that out. And you're quite a bit younger than I am. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's really just minimalism kind of at the core of just like owning fewer things and really just reducing my impact a lot too. Like a lot of, you know, energy is used for cooling your giant house and having all these extra bedrooms that you don't use. And Um, I just kind of noticed that the bigger the space that I had, the more stuff that I just filled it up with. It's like, oh, I can fit this, so I might might as well get it. And so unless I confine myself to like physical limitations of where I live, I'm just going to consume and fill it up. And so it's a way to kind of like limit my consumerism in a lot of ways. I'm getting the sense that like you've lived an intentional life for a while. I mean, even, you know, the minimalism and also um, the the job, you know, being an engineer in, in what it, what kind of traffic flow did you call it? Like active traffic? Active transportation. Active transportation. It's like the term for like biking and walking and public transportation. It used to be called alternative transportation, but it's kind of like, you know, we don't want to call it alternative. No, definitely not not an alternative should be a priority in a lot of in a lot of ways and so active transportation is what uh kind of the industry term at that point yeah when i was working yeah so i mean it seems like you know you've been living a fairly intentional life or did it kind of just fall fall into place that way yeah it kind of all fell into to place like that i mean i guess i started getting pretty intentional 
uh, it was really after like I broke up with a long-term partner and I had a lot of time and kind of started filling it with more endurance level sports. And so I started running, uh, ran my first marathon after that, and then started increasing like my biking distances at that time too. And so that was like 2016. And then from then on, I just like, yeah, started to really make conscious decisions about like, this is what I want to do. And this is like how I want to live my life. That could be one of the good things that comes out of a breakup if you allow yourself the opportunity because, and I'm only speaking from my own experiences, but I've gotten out of relationships and I realized that I put so much in, there wasn't much of myself left. And then I had to like have a conversation with myself and say, okay, what do you want to do? What kind of person do you want to be? You know, and then kind of figure it out. No, absolutely. Like I, I kind of realized that I had put all of my happiness into another person. I wasn't just, I wasn't taking care of myself. And so, uh, yeah, once I had the opportunity to, I just started like, yeah, doing things that I always wanted to do. And a lot of that was just with friends, friends who started, who did this stuff, like friends who ran marathons and my friend Anga, who I've ridden bikes with for the past decade, we just started doing more, just taking crazy ideas and bringing them to life in a lot of ways. And so, can you give me an example? Yeah, our first, it must have been 2016 at the time, we uh, went bike camping for the first time and we had our fixed gear bikes and we just, we didn't have any bags. We just filled like a hiking backpack with stuff, threw it on our backs and then biked like 60 miles out to like the to Lake Tawakonee State Park outside of Dallas. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. Just because it was like, how do we get out of town? Like it's what's the easiest- Tawakini, I it's believe. It's hard to pronounce. Yeah. yeah. Really just, yeah, like what's a good way to get out of town and what's the fastest way? So we just went east um, to get out of Dallas. Yeah. So yeah, we just threw stuff in a backpack and went out and like um, some friends met us at the camp that night and brought uh, like food and stuff for us, which was nice. And then uh, we biked back the next day through like a torrential downpour and I ended up like flatting out all of my tubes. <laughs> and so we ended up like walking a mile and luckily we were close enough that we could take the train at that point back into dallas but oh nice yeah lucked out yeah do you uh do you own a car uh, i do now uh when i moved to california in 2017 i sold my car like a month after i lived there yeah so i lived car free from 2017 to 2021 for a long time oh wow that's pretty good yeah yeah, it's yeah. it's hard to go without a car. I mean, it cuts out a lot. You know, it's a it's kind of like a next level commitment. It's, if you don't travel, I mean, if you live in a dope ass city and you love where you are and you never want to leave, then not that big of a deal, I guess. But um, I've always I always find I'm wanting a room somewhere. Yeah. No. Yeah. When I was living in San Francisco, that was another thing of just like reducing things that I own. And really, transportation is such a large. Um, it takes a lot of money and it's really like, I mean, it's the second big, biggest expense of any household. And so I realized that I could like, you know, cut my $500 car payment and insurance and everything. And I could use that. Basically I flipped my car into owning a sailboat in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like paying dock fees instead of a, a car payment. My friend Connor and you would, would get along. He's got a sailboat too. Yeah. You're the only two people I know that I, uh, I think, have or have owned yeah. uh, sailboats. No, I love it. It's just like using, I mean, using what's out there, using the wind to just uh, continue on. And biking's in a lot of ways that for me as well, because just you, you're using your own power 
without any impact on the environment, really. Yeah. So paint a picture of what your life looks like now in terms of your minimalism, where are you living? You're going to like Iceland soon, aren't you? So Yeah. So I'm in grad school in a grad program in Isafjordur, Iceland, which is a, um, kind of the capital of the West Fjords. It's like 2,500 people. And the whole region itself is only 7,000. So I just finished my first year there. Um, and I'm studying coastal communities and regional development. It's like, what does a region do to thrive and survive from like their economy to their entertainment? And like, what is the social atmosphere of a place? So I just finished up my first year. There's a lot of like courses and things like that. Sociology, economy. Um, and then I go back later this week, uh, to start my second year and I'll be writing a thesis on how and if, unconditional basic income can foster innovation in outlying communities in Iceland. Okay, slow that down. Unconventional basic income. Unconditional basic income. Okay, so we're talking about a universal basic income. Universal, unconditional, same okay. thing. I hadn't heard that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it's more, it's more common as unconditional in Europe. Okay. But here it's universal. Gotcha. So yeah, I'll be studying that. And so it's kind of a way, kind of like one of the social things that I'm trying to look into is this concept that has been occurring in Iceland called brain drain, where everyone goes to college in the capital area, uh, Reykjavik, and then they stay there after school. And so what happens is these small communities around Iceland, they're missing their like 20 to 30 year olds. And until they want to have kids or start a family or just get back to where they're from, they move back in like their 30s to 40s. Um, but really these communities are missing like the 20 to 30 year old age group. Weird. So it's kind of like if, you know, if rent was paid for, if transportation was paid for, would you start a business? Would you start a podcast? Would you, right. uh, what would you do basically? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of this thought experiment. This is a conversation that, you know, Andrew Yang ran his whole platform on was universal basic income. Maybe not his whole platform, but yeah. certainly. And I'm I'm not a big into politics, so I don't I don't yeah. know that that much. So I shouldn't talk too much out of school. But um I do know that he was he was pushing the UBI. And there's a lot of things that he was saying that made sense to me. If you look at automation that's taking away jobs. I mean, we're going to get replaced more and more and more by technology. Right. And how are those people going to earn an income? That's one way to look at it. Another thing I really like is like you said about what would people do if they could pursue anything? And then how much happier as a society, as a race, as whatever, we're just a bunch of more like happy people running around producing things and doing things that we love to do. Exactly. You know? It sounds like you're still studying it, but do you have like uh, your own thought on on how it would work out well, or how it, you know some of the challenges with it? Um, so I haven't dug into it too much yet, but my own biases say that yes, of course, it's a great idea. And Iceland's a unique place because it has such a small population, and it's already a social welfare state. That a lot of this is already kind of in society. So like some of the biggest differences that I found of living in Iceland versus like living in America is just the amount of trust that's in society. 
Um, and like a classic example is like everyone has kickstands on their bikes in Iceland and they just put it on a kickstand and leave it outside. Okay. And they don't lock it up. There's no bike racks or anything like that. And so there's so much trust in the community. Like if something was to happen, someone would know who it is and like you would get your bike back basically. Yeah, there's there's a lot of trust. And um, another example is um, when I first moved to Isafjörder, uh, I reached out to uh, the owner of the bike shop on Facebook. And so me and a classmate met up with him and we said, hey, we want to help you out. Um, like we want to work on bikes uh, here in the community. And he was like, yeah, that sounds great. Um, I think I have an extra key. Here you go. Uh, like you're in charge, like you're now an admin <laughs> on my Facebook page, like respond to messages and like, let's get it going, you know? Um, uh, that's so so like the amount of like, like in more of a figure of speech way, like handing the keys over to someone is like a, more of a common thing and just like having that trust. Wow. Interesting. How long have you been living in Iceland? Just a year. Yeah. So after you wrapped up your uh, American tour that we are going to talk about, but um, after you wrapped that up, what put Iceland on your, was it purely school? Like what, what? Yeah, purely to, school. Yeah. Um, so I found this program a few years ago and I had been following it for some time. And really what drew me to it was the price tag. It's only $3,000 a year uh, to study there. And oh. then rent is like between $300 and $500 a month. And so I realized that like, you know, with a limited budget or with not too much money, I could go live there for like at least, you know, a year or two. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I actually applied from the road when I was biking. I actually got really, I was, I was staying with the warm showers host in February before the pandemic in Safford, Arizona. And, you know, we were just talking of, about life and he had, he had lived such a awesome lifestyle. Like he picked up his life when he was 18 and moved to Europe to follow some, you know, job offer that someone gave him verbally. And he ended up traveling around and having like the time of his life. And then he came back uh, to America. He was a professor at UC Santa Barbara. And so he really just inspired me with his travels. And so I finally made the, the decision to apply for this school when I was biking. Do you have to... Uh, speak Icelandic to go to school there? I mean, their language seems extremely complex. It is as complex. A, as it's a layman. It's an English-speaking program. Okay. Um, so it draws a lot of international students um, from all over the world, really. Wow, that is yeah. so cool. I don't have any desire to go to school, but if I did, that one sounds pretty... Yeah. You So you must already have your master's, maybe? No. So you were in, you had your undergrad engineering degree? Yeah, undergrad and engineering. Is this a master's program? This is a master's program. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so when I left engineering, I realized that I wanted to really look at communities, not just from the transportation side, because kind of what I found through my career is that like sometimes transportation engineers can get stuck in this little box that you're just a transportation engineer, but there's so much intersectionality with engineering and other social problems that engineers don't have the power to address really. So like transportation and housing and land use are all directly related, but I was only in charge of just transportation. And so I wanted to get more knowledge on how really, how we develop sustainable communities from like a bigger picture perspective rather than just my little piece of transportation. 
Sounds ambitious. Yeah. In a good, I mean, in it's, a good way, but it, I mean, <clears throat> do you have like a, a roadmap? Like, do you have an idea or is it just like this concept you're just rolling with? Uh, I'm just rolling with it now. I don't really know exactly what I will end up doing um, or how I will use this degree. There's not really like, uh, like with engineering, it's like, oh, okay, you go to school mm-hmm. and then there's a job waiting for you at the end. But with this, there's there's really and really it's such a, like a young program too. Um, it's only like two years old, um, and so there's not a lot of people who have been through the program and who have jobs and things like that. So there's not a lot of like, um, here's what you can do. There's it's not really out there yet. Does that concern you at all? Uh, no, because I'm learning a lot of good things. Yeah, um, and so I'm I not saying it should. I, I think a lot of people might be concerned by that, but. You know, if you live a fairly simple lifestyle, you don't need a lot of money. You can be happy on your bike, you know, sleeping on the side of a highway, or you can be happy in your apartment. You know, it's like, right? it's not as important that you have like this roadmap that's like set in stone that you can like follow maybe. Yeah. And I guess you you could become like a community developer would be like the most common like outcome for, for a job title. So yeah, just like. There's a lot of different uh, titles. You'd be like a, a planner at a city or different things like that. Um, and you can you can do a lot with it, I think. So this is a big question, but do you have some ideas on how to create like better societies? Um, Whether they're not thesis proven or anything, <laughs> but just uh, as you've traveled, I mean, you, you said, you know, as you've traveled, you've like just learn that there's so much more it's a complex problem and it's it's very complex and i've been since i've been back in the states and being kind of around austin it's kind of a classic it's a good example i think of how do you attract people to your city cuz like when you ask someone what they know about austin they're like oh i've never been but i've heard so many good things and it's like what are these little things that austin has done over the past 20 years to put it in the spot that it is now. Um, and so it's like the the bike infrastructure, being able to bike everywhere is like a, a positive thing. It's wonderful. Um, and then having- Public transportation. Public transportation, having all the other amenities like the river and the swimming pools and things like that that make it more- Yeah, livable. all the bike paths attach, uh, take you to water, take you to parks, take you to state parks even. Um, there's state parks that you can access pretty close to here. There's a lot of natural beauty around yeah, in and around Austin. Yeah, natural beauty, public amenities, um, and just being able to access that, I think, is what Austin is really capitalized on. And so you're seeing that influx of people. And so now the next problem they have to figure out is obviously like housing. But having a, um, I mean, that's an outcome of attracting so of of attracting so many people. And so they'll have to figure out how to, of course, mitigate that next problem. But it's kind of a, you know, a good per se problem to have because it means a lot of people are moving to your to your town i was listening to a podcast with the mayor of austin recently and he was talking about the homeless problem and uh they it it sounded interesting they're they're working on developing like housing and like actually like have a program to get them into and like get them you know whatever whatever they need i mean there could be a myriad of of potential issues um but yeah, one of the things he talked about was how having people kind of gives you money so you can create programs to do something about it. You know, whereas if you're an economically depressed area, 
it's, it's much difficult. Of course, if you're economically depressed, you might not have the larger homeless population maybe, but yeah, just if you have money, then you can like you figure do out. More. And I mean, you see that, I mean, that's like seeing all of the bike infrastructure here, like they're getting pretty serious about it. And it's more or less becoming more of the Dutch style um, as we used to like strive for in uh, transportation engineering of like making it actually really safe and thinking about how drivers are using the roadway too. And like there's good design and bad design. And, you know, you experience it as a driver every day. You're like, oh man, I like, why did I accidentally drive into this bike lane? It's because your road's curved in a bad way, right? And so one of my friends is is working on a project to kind of straighten out the roadway and then bring the bicycle lane onto uh, the sidewalk level. And so there's some sort of protection between that. But all that that takes a lot of money to completely redo your intersection just to raise your bike lane up to the sidewalk level. You know, it's no longer just a stripe. Now you're putting in concrete and, and construction costs. I've expressed my own like angst or anger or whatever towards like my local city, like home to Austin. I'm like, man, it's so good, but it costs a lot of money to exactly. be this good. And that's the part that is kind of frustrating my hope is, and and please speak on this, but like my hope is that there's more people like you that are um, more mindful and more aware. And even like in my own uh, college station, you're familiar with college station. When they build roads now, they're night and day. You know, now we have these big sidewalks that you can ride your bike on, you can walk, you can scooter, whatever. And then you have a bike lane and then you have like two and then you got to turn, like everything is spaced out. Everything is, you know, so they are getting better. Um, And I guess that's, it's, it's partially roads getting better and then also Mm -hmm. fucking electric vehicles. Right. Yeah. Those are coming, aren't they? Talking about automation. They they are, but I I think, I mean, they're still, they're not going to mitigate traffic. Like if everyone just converts their vehicle to an electric vehicle, we still have the same number of cars out there. And so we're still going to, like we may improve the amount of traffic that can go through a highway because they're a little bit more efficient and they can talk to each other, but they're still going to be the same amount of cars out there in a lot of ways. And that still creates the problems of traffic and things like that. It's not going to be just this streamlined thing. What do you think the future looks like with transportation? If, uh, if electric vehicles don't fix all of our problems, and it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's just so much with transportation and a lot of decisions that have been made already that just impact how we interact with our communities. So like the interstate highway system never planned for highways to actually go through downtowns. They were supposed to go back to like at grade roadways, but now highways go through like city centers and things like that, which really just allows people to drive a lot easier And so that's why you see like this demand of cars because we make it easy to drive. But as you mentioned, um, now roads are getting better as in providing more ways to bike, like having two different ways to bike on like the shared use path or the bike lane. And so I think that's uh, hopefully what the future is. And that's all policy based of, um, I think Texas or TxDOT adopted a, 
complete streets policy, which basically means like if you're going to improve a roadway, you have to think about all modes rather than just cars. And so uh, the transportation system leading up to like this point has been primarily car focused. And so as much money as we spend on infrastructure, it's all for cars. But now we're seeing more funding for bicycles, which is great. Do you know so, why? Do you know? <clears throat> I mean, I, I could envision. I know that our infrastructure is is a concern. Uh, keeping up with it, we built all this stuff. Right now, we got to pay to maintain it. Right, that's an ongoing concern that I always hear about. Yeah. So, what? Who's pushing it, or is it more cyclists that want? Like, who's pushing that demand? Um, I'd say that's a good question. It, it's a lot of things. So, like, you can build it, and they will come. So, if you build more bike lanes, people will think about biking more, but there's also, you can think of it from like a company perspective. You want more of your employees to bike, like what, what amenities do cyclists need to bike to work? And there's a huge barrier when I started biking to work of like, what if I forget this? How am I going to get home and get my shoes that I forgot or something like that? And I had to learn so many little things of like what to bring like the shoes and the socks and you have to pack an extra pair of clothes because you can't just bike in your you know, button down shirt, um, at least not in Texas. But there's a lot of amenities at the office level. So like having a shower, having a secure bike facility to put your bike. Um, and so you see a lot of that coming up in the conversation too. And actually there's a really great pilot project going on in Bentonville now uh, with people for bikes and what they're doing up there. I listened to a great prog- podcast. Tell me about it. Um, my good friend Christy Holt works for people's people for bikes up there. She used to actually own the bike shop of the shirt I'm wearing, local oh. hub in Deep Ellum, uh, East Dallas. Yeah, that's or downtown Dallas. Dallas. Yeah, yeah. Cool. but now she has made her way up there. But they're focusing on the company level and really creating incentives to get companies to get people on bikes rather than like the infrastructure conversation rather than saying build it and they will come like they're actually like at the people level. And so like at the infrastructure level, you, yeah, you say you, you build it and they will come, but who are these people rather than like the company level, you know, who your employees are. Um, if you give them a shower and some bike racks and talk to people about what's, what are some barriers that you're experiencing from biking to work? Like, do you need help planning a route or like, what is it? You know, yeah. Bentonville is like the perfect place to do that. Well, maybe not the, but certainly a great place to do that because well, I mean, it's blowing up there. They definitely have the cyclists, they have the infrastructure. Um, and they also have a lot of corporations there too. If you yeah. go up there, there's a lot of big companies with a lot of money, so it makes a lot of sense. And I can, I mean, I've never, uh, I, I've been lucky to kind of work, be self-employed and haven't had to, you know, go and punch a clock, time clock for yeah. a, a little while. But yeah, I would think, you know, just getting to work and be able to like take a shower, be able to change into your riot clothes and, and having a locker there so you don't have to like haul your stuff back and right. forth. Nothing crazy. Exactly. But, um, what's the benefit to the company to do that? I mean, healthier employees, happier employees, lower Healthy, health, yeah. health insurance, all Absolutely, those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, allowing people to ride bikes there's all of that like better. just a smarter level of a lot of times when you think about corporations i mean i certainly and a lot of people have like you know it's like not employee centric right it's yeah. like it's bottom line centric yeah um and so maybe this is i mean it still is bottom line centric right like they want to create a happy employee 
who is healthy, right. who doesn't miss work as much and doesn't cost as much in healthcare. So I and, guess it's still his bottom line, too. but at least it's a higher level of thinking. Yeah, but then there's also a great policy that I experienced in California was the cost of pricing. And so if you opted out of not taking a parking spot, you would get um, a couple hundred dollars a month to pay for public transportation. You could either pay for public transportation or you can completely just get cash. So there was three options on your mode to work. You could drive and have a parking spot. You could get reimbursed for your public transportation fees, or you could just say, I'm going to walk to work. So give me some cash. And so that's part of the bottom line for office developments is the amount of uh, how much parking costs. And yeah, because it, it really is like it's a whole nother rent th- on top of like your office space. Right. Oh, man, that would be huge, especially if you have a ton of employees paying for a place just for them to park their right, vehicle just to park their car. for eight, nine, whatever hours a day, as opposed to like a little locker for their bike. Exactly. I, th- it's it's exciting. You yeah. know, um, again, I think it's all about their bottom line, but if it creates uh, a better work environment um, and he- healthier people and allows people to... Yeah, less people fucking driving, less pollution. Yeah, um, less all and it's, that. It's, every, it's all the benefits that you know we experience with biking too, of slowing down, of seeing you know more of our communities around us, True. and like listening to the song that that's playing at the bar on South Congress on my ride over here, and you're just like kind of jamming with it, like this is fun, <laughs> you know? And yeah, you're way more in. Hundred percent, man. You will never know a city as well unless you're like on a bike, you know, I mean, you can walk everywhere, but it just takes forever. It really does. And your, your range that, um, I mean, you can cover on a bike is, uh, a lot more with the same amount of time. All right. So in your travels, um, what, uh, city or area has the best, has it figured out the best in terms of this like traffic and, and, and bike infrastructure problem? Um, tricky question. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of good examples. I think Austin is definitely like on top of a lot of the lists um, out there for what they're doing. There is uh, other places that have like it's it's just a bunch of policies that I that I think places have done well. So like Portland has a development boundary, so they're not going to develop outside of this area. And so that allows you to prevent urban or urban suburban sprawl, right? Because you're only going to develop in this confined area. And Texas doesn't have that problem because we have so much land. But if we did confine ourselves to think that we're only going to develop in this area, it would basically reduce the size of our cities, which reduces commute times, right? If we think about shrinking or just developing the size of our city a little bit smaller. So that increases density and different housing options like that instead of building just like single family houses on like the next vacant spot right. outside just of our keep cities. Going. And that's another area where Austin, I mean, the place that we're staying in right now um, is a brand new, I don't I guess it's, it's a, like a multifamily home. It's a, I think we're in a grandma flat or like a accessory dwelling unit is what you would actually call it. Accessory and dwelling. so like, that's actually a good policy that Austin has done is it has allowed accessory dwelling units. So basically you can build an additional small house in your backyard. And if you look around there, I mean, we've, we come to Austin frequently stay in Airbnbs and almost every time we've stayed in one, it's just like 
on somebody else's property, you know, and uh, it's it's great. And the other thing that I noticed that they do here, we're kind of getting into the weeds a little bit, but <laughs> because I came from real estate, I know that a lot of places have like setback lines. And so you can't build, you know, like 20 feet on your side of the fence and then 20 feet on your neighbors. And so now you got 40 feet of just kind of wasted space, wasted space exactly. you know, whereas this one we're in right now, the back wall of the unit we're in is the property line, yeah. you know, and the fence goes like right up to it. And so, yeah, just maximizing the space it makes a lot of sense i mean i I don't know this whole idea of um and i mean as a real estate agent i can actually speak to this i know that more and more people are downsizing Mm -hmm. like i i i sold way more houses of people who are downsizing than we're upsizing and i would have conversations with them about well i mean it comes up naturally it's like man, why am I paying for this extra room for my kids to come visit, you know, once a Christmas and we have this bit, you know, it's like, no, you just stay in an Airbnb and we'll come over here and meet, meet and have dinner or whatever, you know, it's like, um, it seems like the world is slowly, I say the world, America, uh, is like slowly, um, maybe slowly yeah. trending. I don't know. You, you I might know so. more about it. Um, yeah, I think so. It's really, I mean, a common trend and what like everything has is starting to go to of more of kind of uh, you pay for things as you go, uh, like subscription services and things like that. And really like, you know, renting your house out on Airbnb was not a concept like 20 years ago. Like, why would you share your house with a stranger? But as we, you know, put more trust into societies of like, okay, yeah, like uh, I can rent my house to a stranger um, and it's, it's okay. And the same thing with like maybe renting your car. So people don't have to like own as many things, but they can just pay for it as they go. Even shared office spaces like. Uh, yeah, we, yeah. I mean, we work as a brand that kind of has that example, you know, you, you do co-work. No, we work, uh, co-working spaces. Oh, just, you know, I'm not familiar with them. Sorry. It's, it's just like, I mean, you could rent, uh, either just access to like an office space, like an open table, or you could like rent your own office within a bunch of other, like other people can rent an office in your, in that place as well. Yeah. Did you, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever listened to one of my episodes? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to, uh, the bike pack rafting one or the bike rafting one with uh, uh, Ryan Stoyer. He is developing a maker space mm-hmm. there in LIJ, Georgia. Okay. Um, I, I guess you didn't hear about it, but it sounds really neat. Essentially, it's, it's, they'll have a 3D printer. They'll have like a music room. They're going to have a podcast studio. They'll have a TV studio. They'll have, yeah. um, tools and all kinds of just a, a maker. Like if you want to come in and create something, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they have the facility. I don't, I don't remember if it's like a, you pay a monthly fee or, right, or how yeah, it works. You, you pay a monthly fee or something is yeah, typical. Yeah. Yeah. I saw the pictures from that adventure of your your bike rafting, and I was just like, my mind was blown when, oh, yeah. I, when I saw the pictures. But I, I haven't listened to the episode yet. Yeah. Why was your mind blown? I just didn't even think about it like that, um, like expanding to like biking to waterways because I've like grown up on the water. I'm like a big paddleboarder, right? Or I have paddleboarded in my life. <laughs> like, like you're like I'm hardcore. No, I'm not hardcore, <laughs> but like I enjoy paddleboarding and yeah. like exploring rivers. Uh, like that's what I did in Texas when I lived here, like canoeing and oh, paddleboarding cool. and just, 
uh, yeah, being on the water. I have to get some tips for you, from you. Um, I got into uh, overnight uh, river camping with my friend Connor that I was telling you about, or I mentioned um, during COVID. Actually, I mean, there's just so much stuff we couldn't do, but getting out, we each had our own kayak, and um, you know, just get on the river. There's nobody. Um, right. You're just primitive camping wherever wherever you Anywhere, want. Yeah. Um, we did some great trips, but I'll, I'll need to get some some uh some yeah. other tips from you um it's a great way to that actually is what opened my mind to the beauty of river travel it's so i mean if you're a person who likes to get into nature and get away from you know people and don't doesn't want to go to like a and state parks are great and you know national all these things are wonderful but you know sometimes it's nice to just 100 percent be in the woods and especially in texas that is the easiest way to just get out into nature and be completely, you know, uh, encompassed by it. And then the idea of bike rafting to me is, wasn't super appealing because having all that gear, if you look at, you got a 50 pound bike and however much, well, 50 pounds with gear. Yeah. I mean, you probably got like 60 pounds of gear. You got a 190 pound guy on a raft that weighs four pounds yeah. and you're just hoping that it's like <laughs> going to work. But I can tell you the one thing that I will say about, uh, bike rafting is that it is the easiest rafting I've ever done. Now, not whitewater rafting, but in terms of like kayak canoe, mm -hmm. they handle way, way better. Okay. Like way better. Cool. It's crazy because they are so light. You can maneuver them quickly. You could, you could even like go upstream if it's not, you know, you can okay, like yeah. uh, paddle upstream I mean, you can maneuver them so well. And, uh, it turned out to be, um, a lot of fun. It was cold and rainy, which is not always the fun, but what it did was open up my mind to just having two different modalities of travel because on the third day it was, it was bike camp, float camp, float, and then go home. But on that third day, again, it was like three days of cold and rainy and we had another like five hours of floating, but there was this little like access that we could like hop off or, or, or portage where we could like get out and get on the road with our bikes oh, yeah. and be back to the car within an hour. Nice. You know, it was like eight miles, Yeah, but eight miles on a bike and eight miles on a kayak yeah, or right. back are way different. Drastic so um, different. yeah, we were just like, Hey, let's just hop on our bikes and you know, get warmed up and go get some food and stuff. Yeah. We were pretty beat down uh, towards the end of it, but it it was was pretty sweet. Yeah. Let's talk about some bike. I mean, we could talk about fixing society till the cows <laughs> come home, but you know, it's fun to talk about. And I know that you're like you're kind of in that and and very like aware and purposeful about it, you know, and thoughtful about it. So let's start with you're working in California and you got a wild hair up your butt to quit. <laughs> your job, throw caution to the wind and, and ride your bike around America. Is that how yeah, it went down? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, it really like kind of came to fruition kind of the last four months or just kind of over like a four month period of like made the decision that I was going to quit my job. I was just going to bike, like take some time off, reprogram my brain a little bit from not working 50 to 60 hours a week to just like taking some time for myself and like figuring out um, the next step in life or, and really it's kind of like a lot of my life has been planned or I've tried to plan a lot of my life. And so it's a lot of trying to get rid of that mentality a little bit, like what happens if I don't plan and like, where, where can I go? Um, and so that was, uh, definitely part of the experience of biking. So did you, you said, uh, four months before you quit, like 
did you start thinking about it before? Or did you just quit and then like plan it after? No, yeah, I was definitely like, I was planning quite a bit uh, before I quit. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was like kind of like a four month process. Uh, so I, I quit in January. So I guess back in like September, I really started to like, you know, got my surly long haul trucker and I figured out what tent I was going to get and what camping pad and things like that. And like looked at my route quite a bit. And I really just kind of strung together Venture Cycling Association routes. Mm -hmm. And so I went down the Pacific coast and I was going to do the Southern tier. I was going to do the Atlantic coast and then the Northern tier. And it kind of worked out with like a weather window too. Um, so I was going to, in the winter in January uh, in February and March, I'd be on the Southern tier. And then by like, I mean, it was by what, June or July, I'd be on the Northern tier. So hopefully all like the snow would be melted, like crossing mm. the Rockies. Yeah. So there was like a weather window aspect into it as well. How much uh, bike packing, bike touring, bike camping, whatever you want to call it, did you have prior to going into this? Not a lot. I rode from San Francisco to San Diego in 2018. And that was kind of my first like multi-day. I had done a handful of like overnights and things like that, but really it was kind of just throwing things in a backpack or just going like super ultra light and kind of like winging it out there. But yeah, when I rode from San Francisco to San Diego, that was putting together a couple of days together. And I was just staying in hotels too. Like we didn't do any camping or anything like that. Uh, yeah, I made a decision to, to bike like that. That's when I got serious and got like a surly long haul trucker and got my four panniers and everything like that. So I think, you know, I, a lot of people listening will probably be curious about like, how, how do you plan? Uh, that's a huge undertaking. What were some of the resources that you used to pick your bike, your bag? I mean, I had thought about doing it on a bike that I already owned, um, which was like a carbon specialized diverge and like, how can I make it work on this? Like I could do like a bike packing setup and really I kind of threw that out the window, out the window because I was worried about carbon and it breaking on the road and then having to replace it was really like the reason I, I didn't do that. And so, um, yeah, I just went with the tried and true. I was like, so they long haul trucker, like everyone does it on that and it's steel, um, you know, it, it can handle a lot of weight and it's made for it. And so I, I decided to do that and I went with a uh, four pannier setup and really packing wise, um, really it's just kind of like, I had a few things already. Like I had a sleeping bag that I was comfortable with, but then like the little things that I needed was just kind of like researching the item that I needed. So like, what's the best bike packing tent? And I ended up getting like a big Agnes Fly Creek 2, which comes in a bikepacking size. And so they reduced the tent pole size right. from 18 inches to 12 inches, which is like very appealing. Like Super. just like the six inches, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's the only reason I got it because it had 12 inch poles versus yeah, 18 that. inch. Yeah. And so, yeah, just researching those little, those little things. But my mentality going into it, because it was such like a long trip and it was like supposed to be eight months and 10,000 miles, that I was going to carry everything that I would need to live in a new place for like a certain period of time. Like if I found a place that I really liked, I wouldn't, I would consider stopping. And then I like had like a collared shirt or something in case I needed to go to a job interview oh, cool. or something like that. So I wasn't like, I wasn't ultralight at all. I was carrying quite a bit of things that I never used. Um, <laughs> 
Well, you didn't know. I mean, they, yeah, that, you, you didn't know. That I think speaks to what you're saying about like not having a plan. You kind of have to prepare for a lot of things if you don't have a plan, right? Because anything could happen. Yeah. So you have to be a little bit more prepared if you're going to not have no like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm staying right. here. I'm, you know. Yeah. And then route wise, I, it was like adventure cycling associations routes, but I knew that I wanted to see a lot of friends on the way. So I just connected friends and dots of where I wanted to be and who I wanted to see. What about sleeping? Uh, well, I mean, we know sleeping. what kind of tent, but I'm curious. I mean, on a tour like this, I know you mentioned like warm showers. Yeah, I was using warm showers actually pre-pandemic and then during the pandemic as well, I started to use it. But I would only stay at places where I could pitch, pitch my tent in people's backyard. And so I didn't necessarily always, I rarely went into their houses. I just kind of stayed outside. Um, so that was a resource. But I still had some planning like I still had a lot of things planned out and like I planned out like where I wanted to be. Um, cause there's definitely certain milestones that I needed to hit. So like I needed to be in Texas by a certain time cause I needed to catch a flight to go to a wedding in North Carolina. And so it was kind of like these little checkpoints that I just started backtracking to. And so it's like how many miles or how many days will it take to, to cover that amount of time. And for me, I think, uh, like traveling solo too, I wanted to like stay at organized places like campgrounds and stuff every night just to give me that peace of mind. So I didn't have to worry about, uh, where I was sleeping every night. So I generally knew where I wanted to go. Uh, or really, I, I really did know where I wanted to go every day. Yeah. That would be a huge, uh, mental, like, relaxation you know just like allow you to not worry about that unless you're a person that just wings it but i i, I like to wing level. it but yeah that's like another like, level yeah i think if we wind up sleeping in like a ditch somewhere most right. likely drew who connected us originally he's yeah. that kind of way of just like i'm just gonna go bike and i've got you know i'm gonna sleep under a bridge and like that's totally fine and um i envy him in a lot of ways but i still have like a, a planning mindset in my head for that kind of uh, yeah mental relaxation at the end of the day yeah. I was saying this to uh, one of my uh, guests recently, um, Liam, but he won the Highland Trail race and he's an engineer. And I asked him, I was like, do you feel like there's a disproportionate amount of engineers that do these types of things? And he said, yeah. Yeah. And I, I it, more and more, I'm like, engineer, engineer. But we were talking about it. It's like, it's just a big puzzle. It's a huge right. puzzle. And, you know, I think engineers like, figuring out puzzles you know? yeah that's all it is <laughs> all engineering is is really just problem solving yeah um and sometimes your uh problem has been solved before so you can use like another example but sometimes you you know have to venture off and figure it out for yourself but yeah it's all about figuring it out and getting comfortable in this new environment and i think that's a that was a huge draw to to doing the the bike tour i mean this was a huge endeavor a pandemic happened in the middle of it I don't want to get to the pandemic yet, but more specifically, from your experience traveling America mm -hmm. or uh, por portions of it, a large swath of it, let's talk about expectation versus reality, both of, you know, the cycling experience and also, you know, human connectiveness and like just meeting people out on the road. Yeah. I mean, expectations pre-pandemic were very much like connecting with a lot of people 
and mainly I found that through warm showers because um, warm showers is so nice because you show up to someone who's already who already knows what you're doing. Uh, most likely they've biked toward or have done some biking before. And so you get to kind of like skip the like, oh, you're crazy for doing this step, which is really nice and kind of like refreshing when you're bike touring. Um, just to get over, you don't that have hump. to tell that story a thousand times. So you really like it's it's really fun because you get one night with these people um, that bring you into your house, and you really just like as we did with our societal issues, um, you know, in the first half of this podcast of just like really diving in and like what's the problems in society, <laughs> and so we talked a lot about like climate change and things like that, and things that I was passionate about. Um, which was a lot of fun and just like exhilarating to just be in such a deep conversation already, uh, like within one night of just staying and knowing these people. I, that was like a lot of fun. Yeah, I can imagine it's easier to get it's easy to get past the surface level of someone's like riding across America. It's like, all right, there's, yeah. there's something more going on here. <laughs> yeah, so that was really enjoyable. And then the people I met on the road, um, there's definitely like people you meet at gas stations, like, oh, where are you biking to? Where are you coming from? Like, oh, that's like kind of crazy, but cool. And then really I wanted to uh, just trust people, really. Like, um, you know, of course there's a lot of people who are homeless um, that you meet on the road or like you're stopped at a stoplight and somebody talks to you who's on the corner or things like that. And really I just wanted to trust those people and just listen to their story and listen to what they were saying. And so I tried to do that like with everyone I met. Like I didn't try to say like, oh, this person's threatening me or trying to come at me right now. It's like get over that anxiety that I, I did have in, in some situations, but like just trust this person uh, up front and see what happens. And I mean, every time it, it ended up fine. And we just, you know, had a conversation or just like a short interaction of like, uh, just trust, which was nice. Did you interact with a lot of homeless people? Um, in some places I would say, yeah, the, the, some of the experiences that stand out in my mind are some of those interactions. Um, so like, I think I was in, I think it was Zapata, Texas. Zapata? Uh, Zapata. I like it. Um, it's over in East Texas. And I, there oh, was. I like, would figure that'd be like South or West Texas. No, I think it was. Um, anyway, I believe you. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, there was like this crazy Texas thunderstorm rolling through, of course. Um, and it just started to downpour on me. But luckily, there's a small town. And I just uh, went and got shelter at like a grocery store awning. And there were some other people there. Uh, actually on bikes as well. And so we just started talking about bikes and like their bike versus my bike. And like uh, this guy, I think, had like rigged up this like dynamo on his thing. And um, anyways, there's like a torrential downpour and I started talking to them and like, oh, how far are you going? I'm like, oh, I'm not really sure. Like hopefully uh, if the rain lets up, I'll keep going. Um, but then he he offered uh, for me to stay at, like in his tent with him. Um, and I said, Hey, I don't like need a, I have my own tent, but like, it'd be nice if I could pitch my tent next to you. And I ended up, uh, continuing to ride that day, but like, he was super friendly about it. Um, and he actually was like, Hey, you can stay, but like, by the way, I'm a crystal meth user. So you do have to like understand that coming, if you're coming to stay with me. 
Um, but like, I don't know, it's just a nice conversation and like nice of him to come forward with this information if like I was going to stay with him. But like that trust of like, he invited me into his tent. Yeah, um, that's wild. And and yeah, so I, I do remember a lot of those I always situations. Wanted, um, I've wanted to, uh, I don't know if I'll, I probably won't ever do it, but I think I would like to do a podcast where I talk to, you know, people who are between homes or homeless right. or unhomed or. Yeah. Um, do, uh, <clears throat> there's invisible people on YouTube. Oh, is there one? Yeah. He talks to people mainly in California. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I've, um, I actually have heard of this. Yeah. He talks to people on Skid Row and then, um, a but lot he of has people, a, he has like a program too, doesn't he? Or no? I don't know. Okay. I've watched a few of his videos. I'm not an expert on it, yeah. but I, I, I am. There's this whole culture that I'm so uh, not tapped into at all. And yeah, and, yeah and, I, and it's a little scary, you know? It, it is. And it is that unknown that is that creates the fear, you know? Right. Usually. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I did interact with people who were homeless on the way, but I just really like... Uh, in terms of society, I th- try to think about or try to understand like what their position was or like how did they end up there? Like what did we do as society for that person to be on the streets and why don't we have a place for them to stay? Why was it important to you to go into the uh, uh, the ride, the journey with this you know intention to be open to people, to not be fearful of them, to be vulnerable? I think just because the way that I was raised in Texas was to kind of like, um, I mean, in just society in general, I think is raised to just fear the unknown. And when I, you know, told my family and friends that I was going to do this, all of their reasons for trying to convince me not to do it were based in fears of unknowns. And so it was, um, yeah, hopefully to prove to some people that like people are good at the core of it. And so a lot of like the things that people were, some people who were scared for me for writing around America of like, I knew a a friend who died on a bike. There's scary people out there and just different excuses like that. And I didn't really want to take that as fact. I wanted to hopefully prove them wrong that like, yes, I, I, I should survive. Like it is very possible to get hit by a car riding a bike in America, which is, which it shouldn't be, right? Like everyone should have the right to ride their bike safely. Sure. Um, and so I wanted to prove that. Emphasis but, on should. Yes, emphasis on should. Well, and what what kind of experiences did you have with drivers specifically? It sounded like most of your human interactions, you didn't have any crazy, um, which is great. Um, yeah, there's a crazy guy in Ohio who um, I was, it was like five o'clock. It was, the sun was still out. And he called me out for not having my back light on and for wearing all black, even though like my bike was like, I had gray panniers and it's huge and I had a white helmet on. So like I was pretty visible and the sun was still out, but he kind of like followed me for like a mile or two. And he just kept trying to say that I wasn't visible enough. So I did turn on my backlight and he just continued to follow me because he thought he was like keeping me safe or something. <laughs> I ended up just like peeling off on like a side road. I'm like, dude, get away from me. Like this is a road where I should be able to bike uh, and bike peacefully. So we were talking about expectation versus reality with the people. Were you pleasantly surprised overall? 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really don't have any like bad situations to speak of and nothing really like I, of course I had some mechanicals and things like that, but, um, even riding during the pandemic, like people were nice and I, you know, got offered some rides if I was like working on a flat on the side of a highway or some people felt the need to give me money when I was like sitting outside a gas station or something like that, which was like super nice. They didn't need to do it. And I ended up uh, just donating it forward um, mm. to uh, a, a organization called One Percent for the Planet that I was raising money for on my ride. Um, who just connect your dollars to nonprofit organizations who are doing good work for the environment. When into your trip did uh, the co did the COVID hit? Did the COVID? <laughs> um, yeah. When did when did uh, yeah? How far into your trip were you? Whenever that kind of all came a reality i was in texas actually um so i kind of took this roundabout way through texas so i took adventure cycling southern tier all the way to austin and then i diverted to go to my parents house in victoria and i went up to dallas yeah and then i was going back down to connect to the southern tier again and then i made it across texas and so the day i crossed into louisiana um, I turned my phone on after the ride and Louisiana had issued a shelter in place, uh, for like the next six weeks. And I mean, campgrounds were closing down. Like it was all like Florida, like I was going to Florida and Florida was like the epicenter at that time and they were closing everything. And so at that time, end of March, I guess is when it all got like when lockdown occurred, that's when I, uh, paused for a little bit. Um, and so, uh, you're on this trip of your lifetime and then I'm talking to my parents and like, we're coming to get you. I'm like, come on, mom and dad, like, please, like, just let me like, um, and I, I took like four or five days to think about it. And I was planning my route to see what would happen. Um, but yeah, it really just didn't make sense to keep going with everything shutting down. And I was I just following worried. you on Instagram. Where were you, were you stationed at your parents' house for that four or five days? Uh, that was... Uh, near the Texas Louisiana border, it was like Sandy Creek Park on a lake okay. uh, near Jasper, Texas. So that's where I kind of just like took like five days off to really think about like, can I do this or like what would it take? And then I I was continuing on, but then once I got into Louisiana and they had issued shelter in place, that was kind of like the the last straw for for that time period yeah it would be very difficult to do it if you're relying on public campgrounds yeah and even like warm showers i bet a lot of people would be a lot less right and so i was basically going to wild camp at that point if i was going to continue on um so i was using like free campgrounds.net or .com or whatever it is um so i was kind of stringing those together a little bit but really i was just worried about food and actually like be like i guess i was worried about carrying the viruses to different places too like my own um of course i didn't want to contract it but what if i didn't know and what if i was traveling between these places and just like yeah you know pushing it through to these small communities that i was going through like that's detrimental so hindsight being 2020 do you think you made the right decision yeah yeah i definitely think so i think it was the right time to to get off the road and um 
and I was fortunate enough that like I could go to my parents' house who live, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere on some land in Texas. So like we were pretty safe there too. Um, so I ended up taking like 10 weeks off, uh, from the tour. Um, and that's when I found out that I got accepted into my master's program in Iceland. And so that was like the next, that was a checkpoint on my tour. I was like, okay, how do I get to Iceland and how do I continue to bike? And so I changed my route, uh, to end in Boston, but I also, I go on a yearly camping trip with some friends and we were meeting in Minnesota. Uh, so I decided to go from Texas to Minneapolis and Minneapolis to Boston. So it became a ride across America instead of a ride around America, (laughs) but I just used these checkpoints and then, um, basically back calculated how much time I needed to get to Boston to fly to Iceland to make it to school on time. (laughs) (laughs) Did you make it? I made it. Yeah. And then I actually, I flew to Iceland, uh, and I biked from Reykjavik to Isafjörður, which is it took six days. So I, I, and so I just took my four panniers of everything that had my life in it and just moved to, moved to Iceland. Wow. That's wild. Did you forget anything? (laughs) uh yeah of course um no i mean since i had been living i guess i you know i got my parents to ship some things at that point and started to collect my stuff from where i had left it in america like i had some snowboard boots in san francisco still so i got a friend to ship those over and like he had one of my thick coats and different things like that so i started to collect my a few more belongings that i had had scattered around america but couldn't carry on a bike with me at the time. That's crazy, man. Just shows you that stuff. It weighs you down. It does. It certainly does. How many miles did you total ride around and across and through and zigzagging in America? Yeah, it ended up being 6,972, but yeah, 7,000 so miles. To, no. And I, so and I think it was like, there was certain, like, I think I got a ride maybe like three or four times from some friends where I skipped a few miles. So if I didn't do that, I would have hit 7,000, but I really, I wasn't going to go ride 28 miles to make it 7,000. <laughs> Cause it's really just my mentality was if I could spend more time with my friends on the tour, then I would take a ride. Um, and it, it made sense in some situations. Like I got a ride and I kind of bonked when I came out of the, when I started riding again after my 10 weeks off at home, um, when I was going from Texas to Minneapolis, the first few days, I was just a wreck. Really struggled for the first few days getting out of Texas, both with like the heat and just the anxieties of being on the road again. Can you like summarize what it's like to pack up everything and like live on your bike for that extended period of time? It sounds like extremely daunting. I mean, the whole thing sounds very scary and filled with like doubt about physical ability and I mean, all, you know, people and just everything is an unknown. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. I mean, I think, so I rode from San Francisco to San Diego with some friends. Um, and my friend Anga rode with me the entire way. A handful of friends rode from San Francisco to Santa Barbara with me, but then Anga continued from Santa Barbara all the way to San Diego with me. But then, yeah, once I left San Diego, I was on my own and that was kind of like, oh my God, like, this is it. Like I have everything that I need on my bike and it's, it's just me. Like what, what happens if I, you know, have a problem that I can't fix or 
Um, if I do get hit by a car or I get robbed or something like that, like all of these anxieties and, um, yeah, as you start to figure it out and like get more experience with it, I think I, I started to, uh, realize that the planning that I had done was effective and it like worked and I could do the amount of miles that I plan to do every day, which is somewhere between like 60 to a hundred generally, um, just depending on the day. And it, yeah, I mean, it just became such a confidence booster for my own mentality of not knowing what was going to happen, but then hitting my planned days as I had planned them and like knowing where I was going to camp and like, um, yeah, just hitting at some point I could see, yeah, the, the worry starts to like, fade away. It's like, oh, I can't ride this distance. I can't hit this. Right. I can you know? ride this distance. And so once you know that your plan is kind of working. Yeah. You get that feedback and um, yeah, it really just gives you a boost to keep on going. And I think I, I mean, I was very fortunate to be able to quit my job to do something like that, but I also didn't want to take a sabbatical. Um, I didn't want to have something lingering out there for me to return to. Because I really wanted to create an environment where all I had was time, really. Like, all that's what I kept telling myself when I was out there. Like, you know, this is your decision. If you just stay out there, like, things are going to work themselves out. And putting a lot of trust into the road and, like, listening to the road, too. Um, listening to the road? What does that mean? Listening to the road. Like, if you have a mechanical, it's like, why did I have this mechanical? Like, what... What is the road trying to tell me? Yeah. And don't so, fight it. Kinda. Don't fight it, essentially. And so, like, if I was trying to put down like a huge day in West Texas or something, and in certain situations, you have to ride like 10 miles of the interstate system uh, just to get through like a mountain pass, or like the interstate is literally the only road that goes through this area. And so I hopped on to I 10, uh, I guess, east of El Paso. And I, I broke a spoke as soon as I got into I-10. And so I'm f like trying to fix my spoke uh, on the side of an 80-mile-an-hour highway. And I ended up not having a, a lockering tool because uh, mm. it was on the drive side of the rear wheel, like the worst one you can break. And so I tried to use like my needle nose pliers and like I had some tools, but like you really do need the lockering tool to, to get it off. Um, and so I ended up just like retruing my wheel to make it straight enough without the extra spoke. And then I didn't make it to where I was planning to that day, but where I ended up, I forget what the town was called, but basically there's two hotels. Um, cause I was like, I'm completely toast. I'm just going to grab a hotel for the night. And I went to the first hotel. The person wasn't there, but, um, they were like, I'll be there in 30 minutes. I'm like, I'm just going to go to the other one. So I go to the other one. And I check in and the attendant there was like, are you with the other bicyclist? I'm like, what are you talking about? There's nobody else out here biking. And he's like, yeah, he's in room five. <laughs> um, and so I checked into my room and I, I went and knocked on room five and there was another bicycle tour there who was like basically had done the same route that I did. He started in San Francisco, like uh, I think a few weeks before me and was riding from San Francisco uh, and he was going to basically go from San Francisco to San Diego, ride across America to Florida, and then go ride back to his house in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts. Hmm. Um, 
But because I broke my spoke and didn't make it to the destination that I had planned to and randomly stayed at this hotel, I met another bicycle tour and we ended up uh, becoming really good friends and we rode together for like 10 days. Uh, And we just had the same touring style too. I think that's a big thing when you're riding with other people. Like like I kind of like to sleep in a little bit and like take my time and like eat some breakfast and have some hot coffee in the mornings before I hit the road. Yeah. And he kind of had that same vibe um, and was like like, fine with camping. Do you like traveling solo? Did you, did you get lonely and wish someone was there? Because what you're talking about is also an issue. Anytime you have another person, you know, you got to be on the same speed and you know, if they have a mechanical, you got to wait. I mean, it's just, it adds a layer of complexity or whatever. Right. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I do like traveling alone, but I also, um, I guess I'm trying to figure out how, how I would, uh, ride with someone else on such like a long journey. Um, cause I do kind of like, I like, I do know what I want, but I'm also like willing to be flexible, but I, I just don't know where that line is. Cause I haven't really, um, pushed that boundary a lot, but I like, I, when I'm here in Austin, like I ride with my friend, uh, Anga quite a bit um and other friends too and like it's so much fun to ride with other people yeah i just haven't scaled it up to like more than like riding uh more than 10 days with someone really well yeah you got to find somebody who's able willing you know and then all those other things that like wants to do it the same way wants you know it's like there's a lot of layers of compatibility there yeah Let's uh, talk about what's going on in Iceland. Yeah. So I know, I don't know a lot, but I know obviously you went there for school and it seems like you're involved in some kind of project for cycle touring in Iceland. Yeah. So um, I actually really wanted to study bicycle touring in Iceland as my thesis for like the, what I'll be doing for the next year. But I ended up switching it to, uh, Basically, my program director got a grant for a thesis uh, for innovation, and I was like, "Bicycles are the future; they're so innovative." And I took that I took that idea to him, and he he liked it, but he had this idea for the Universal Basic Income Project. And so, since he was like the grant holder, uh, I still wanted to do it. I wanted to get grant funded for my for my project, and so I ended up taking his idea to study for my thesis, but he did tell me about a student innovation grant, um, through, uh, Rennes in Iceland, which is like an innovate innovation agency, uh, with the government. And so I applied for their funding and it's basically like, a if you're a student in Iceland, you can apply for this and it's three months of a grant fund to, to kind of do whatever you want. And so I applied with Basically, so in the West Fjords, they are they have developed a car touring route around the West Fjords, kind of like uh, the Ring Road in Iceland. Mm-hmm. The Ring Road doesn't actually go through the West Fjords, um, and so the West Fjords have developed like a way to drive through the West Fjords to try and attract people to come and drive and camp and van tour. And so my project was to figure out what bicyclists would need on this route to come tour the West Fjords on a bike rather than a car. Okay. Um, and so I spent two weeks in June biking around the West Fjords um, with, with my rig and everything and really just thinking about uh, what do bicyclists need in rural environments where there's really nothing 
there was up to like, I think like three days where I didn't see like a town or anything like that. Yeah, when you get out in Iceland, there's like, it's real nothingness. Yeah, real nothingness. And so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely like, there are a handful of communities in the West Fjords, but sometimes, yeah, it's a couple of days to get between them. And so it's this, yeah, coming up with recommendations on like how to make it easier for bicycle tours to to do this. Uh, it's Vestfjord Leiden, which means uh, like basically the loop of the West Fjords, but uh, it's also called the West Fjords Way. And so just thinking about like, where should we put campgrounds, like what bike resources are available. And so I talked to people in each community and different like touring agencies are like, are there ways for people to get help if they were biking and needed help? Like, what would that look like? Yeah. Um, and so I went through different stores in each town to look for bike parts and basically coming up with basically more resources for bicyclists. Like, what do they need? Um, and it's really centered around like knowing where you can get help. So it's one, like just getting information out there for people who want to bike the West Fjords. But I'm also hoping that my project will hopefully get places in certain communities to have bike parts available. And it's mainly like tubes, patch kits, sealants, and then hopefully installing like permanent repair stands with bike tools and stuff too. Um, cause that reduces a lot of barriers for bicycle tours, like not having to carry a pedal wrench would be nice, yeah. right? Like, cause that's like a, a one use tool. Um, and they're kind of big and bulky. Um, so different things like that. And then in the West Yards too, with those, there's like, a a handful of mountain passes and really it's the weather in the West Yards that can get kind of tricky, the wind. And so like when you're on these mountain passes and you're up there, the wind can just be horrendous. And there's really, because it's all kind of like lava rock everywhere, there's not like grass, there's not trees, there's no shelter on these mountain passes. And if you get stuck in one of these windstorms and they can be combined with rain, snow, and hail at the same time too, uh, there's no shelter. And so hopefully, uh, or what I want to recommend is figuring out a way to hopefully get some sort of shelter on some of these bigger mountain passes because the distances are, I mean, can be uh, 15 miles on some of those as well. So like two questions, is this your, uh, like a, a solo project? Are you doing it on behalf of anyone or you just kind of took up the mantle? And then secondly, once it's done, who do you send it to, to get approval? Yeah. So it's in line with the goals of Westfjord Stofa, which is the regional development agency of the Westfjords. So they are co-supervising my project with my university as well. And so I'm working with them. So all of my recommendations will go to them. They also run uh, Visit Westfjords on Instagram. So all of my recommendations will go to them and we'll talk about ways like what agencies can we partner with? Can we partner with the road administration to uh, maybe implement a campground here? Or there was one section that had like two kilometers of just like really like thick gravel rock. It was like kind of impossible to ride on because it was just like four or five inch rock like across the entire thing. Um, so can we like talk to the road administration to maybe get that uh, cleaned up a little bit? Um, Cause I was worried I was gonna like break a spoke or something there. Like it was really just unrideable. 
And then just talking to different, uh, hopefully landowners to figure out if we can put a campground in some of these places where there's not a lot of services. Because uh, one of the things I heard from other bicyclists that I met on the way is they biked longer distances than they were comfortable with on those days to get to the next campground. And I think that's that can be pretty dangerous. Well, you just don't want someone to be out there like pushing themselves too much, not knowing if they can make it to their destination. No, um, not in those kind of potential conditions. Yeah, that they not have in those there. conditions. And no. so, hopefully, coming up with recommendations for like maybe two or three places for campgrounds, but also communicating the how to wild camp in Iceland because it is legal to pitch a tent pretty much anywhere in Iceland, but there are certain things to keep in mind when you do do that. It's really cool, man. Like it's cool to just um, fly to Iceland and <laughs> become a member of the community and just uh, so quickly, like just yeah. see an opportunity to, to do something. You yeah. know, I mean, the roads have been there a while. Right. Um, it's cycling is rather popular. It seems like I know quite a few people who, uh, Sarah Swallow, who's just on the podcast, she's there right now doing a the a, rift. Yeah. The rift. Right. Yeah. Yeah, she, yeah. She's doing the rift. Yeah. So what's next for you? I mean, are you planning on being Iceland for a while? Yeah. So I have my thesis for the next year. And then some of the other opportunities, like I was talking about the bike shop earlier, I, it's kind of, um, the bike shop isn't formalized. So it's kind of all under the table right now, which is actually, it's actually legal in Iceland. Like you can, uh, I'll just, I'll claim it on my taxes. And as long as you don't make like a billion dollars off of it, like it's fine to make income to your own personal name. Oh, that's cool. Through that. Um, yeah, so having all this stupid red tape and yeah. so it's just like, no, have right. a bike shop. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> um, so I'm hoping to actually formalize the bike shop and create a business out of it at actually like registered business in Iceland. Um, and so that would hopefully get me another visa after my student visa expires. And so at that point, I would be a business owner and doing good work in the community because there is... Uh, even though it's 2,500 people, like there are like people love to bike in the summer there. Like the summer is just magical in Iceland. Um, it's absolutely incredible. It's funny. You just traveled like all over America and then you go to Iceland <laughs> and then now you're just like, I'm going to figure out how to live here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, pretty much. Is it, um, what is it just that much? Is it just that awesome? I mean, what is it that I, I like it quite a bit. I like that it's uh, social welfare. Like things really make a lot of sense in the way they work. I think there's not a lot of bullshit. And so you... It almost seems like you you feel like you could actually like live there and, and make a difference. Yeah, that's it too. So going from such like large communities living in San Francisco and Dallas to downsizing to a community of 2,500 people, yeah. like... Um, yeah, I really feel like I can make a difference there and provide a service that the community needs. Yeah. Like it's very apparent that they need a bike shop. And I, I think well, it's plus a very, it'll boost their tourism potentially. Like I'm right. already planning my trip to come visit you. Yes, you know, I'm absolutely. like, I got my Iceland guy now. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> I know a lot of people that, you know, we talked on the podcast, a lot of people have gone to Iceland. It comes up a lot in conversation. I know it's, it's amazing and, uh, but never been, um, right. but yeah. Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of opportunities with biking, um, especially in the West Fjords. Like, there's a lot of great mountain bike trails where I live because we're surrounded. It's just the fjord, and so there's mountains surrounding this fjord. So it basically goes from sea level all the way up to like 2,000 feet 
um, in a very short period amount of time. And so, uh, yeah, there are a handful of mountain bike trails already that the community has developed and they're building more. And I think they just approved a plan to uh, run their ski resort as a mountain biking resort in the summer. Mm, um, yeah. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities with biking there and having uh, providing my service as a bike shop there. I think the, the community... Um, from what I've seen, they definitely need it because, uh, like March to once the snow melts, everyone's like, Hey, can you fix my bike? Cause I, <laughs> it's, it's interesting too. They, they, most of them leave their bikes outside for the winter uh, when, so it's like a bunch of, uh, replacing chains and tuning up brakes and things like that. Yeah. It's uh, good, good scrub, business for a bike shop. Yeah. Though. Scrubbing rust <laughs> off of cassettes. <laughs> yeah. I like the idea. I really, that is super appealing, uh, of living in a, a small community. You're downsizing everything. I love it. Even the community <laughs> you live in the, uh, but I mean the idea, cause so oftentimes whenever I talk about things that frustrate me, they're on such a high level that, you know, it doesn't feel like you can actually, like have an impact, yeah, you know? get to the issue. Yeah, it's just so big So sometimes, but to be yeah. able to like be in a community, know the people, they know you're the guy that'll fix their rusty chain whenever yeah. they left it out all winter, uh, you know, create, you know, tourism and, and more opportunities for bike travel. I mean, those are things that, that will have an impact on the community and stuff. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, with this, no planning mindset like having these opportunities that have been in front of me already in iceland it's just like why would i not try and make my life centered around the bike you know having the bike shop having the bike tourism and just being able to ride and stuff um yeah and the, the place is gorgeous like the um one of like the best things about riding in the West Fjords is uh, every stream is pure water and it's like absolutely delicious. Mm. So you just stop on the side of the road and fill up your bottle out of a stream and yeah. it's, you can jump in the water anywhere you want to. It's just like the little things like clean water, clean air, and just like a beautiful environment around you. Sounds beautiful. Last question. Yeah. How, how long or no, no, no. How much does it cost to fly to Iceland with your bike? Uh, and back. I got to come back. Yeah. So it's on Iceland Air, or like I flew Iceland Air. And so it's just your plane ticket, which is like maybe five to $800, depending on okay, that's the time of the year. And yeah. then if you check a bike box, it's like 75 bucks each way. Oh, wow. So like 100, Very reasonable. 150 bucks. Yeah. But if you uh, ride a fixed gear, uh, mash SF makes this great travel bag where you take both wheels off, take your fork off, uh, and you just get it down to your frame and it all goes into this bag. So it's like the smallest your bike can be. Yeah. Um, and that I think falls within the dimensions of a regular checked bag. Nice. So you could save a little bit of money that I'm way. I'm not going fixed yet. Or also, uh, you can fly on Southwest with it for free. So I've traveled that way too with like oh, my cool. fix here. When's the best time to visit Iceland? June and July are okay. absolutely incredible. The, so when do you head back? Uh, you said I, pretty soon, right? Yeah, on what? July 29th. I don't even know what today it's, is. It's somewhere it's, around there. It's, oh my gosh, it's we're in, four days away. Yeah, it's four days away. <laughs> <laughs> are you ready? Uh, absolutely ready. The heat has been a little bit much coming back to Texas. It's brutal right now. Yeah. 
So it's been, it's been fun. Like, uh, when I first went to Iceland and I was biking, like my hands were so cold. Like I didn't know it, like I was wearing gloves and everything, but then as your body, your body takes like six to eight weeks to actually adapt to a new environment. And so it's been cool to see how my body adapts to the cold having lived in, um, Texas and California and places where it doesn't snow and actually get cold. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, to see how my body changes like that. And does it? So six to eight weeks and you can acclimatize to new... Physically, your body changes um, to climatize to your environment. I did not know that. That's fascinating. The human body is fascinating. It really is. And, you know, endurance cycling is a great way to find out just how capable you are. You can ride 7,000 miles with everything you need all over America. Go visit your friends, your family. and. uh And yeah, your body adapts. You get stronger and then you just get used to being outside. Um, I, I maybe shouldn't admit this, but I didn't really wear a lot of sunscreen. Like I didn't get burned. I just got like really tan and stuff, but just like, yeah, I didn't wear chamois butter either. That was another interesting experiment, Yeah, but yeah, just how your body adapts to these situations. And it's, yeah, it's really incredible what the human body can do when you, uh, allow your mind to, to do it. And it's really yeah, you kind of like get out of your own way because yeah. all those fears, right? All those things in your mind are roadblocks. And and I've found at least me, a lot of times it's just allowing you like, let your mind get out of the way so that you can just, you know, go. Exactly. Yeah. Stop thinking. Stop thinking. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to go uh, grab a beer with Aaron Chamberlain, right? Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I followed all of his adventures biking around Texas and so never actually met him so oh, yeah. a, a huge pleasure to do so oh cool yeah so for anyone who doesn't remember aaron was on the podcast oh i think june of last year somewhere around there yeah um and he rode so first he rode every street in austin texas i think on his fixie uh, did he oh we're gonna have to talk about that yeah uh i hope or most of it on his fixie but i think he did all of it on his fixie and uh, then he rode around the circumference of Texas. Yeah. And the first person to do that. Um, and yeah, so yeah. And then we're talking to you, the sur- almost a circumference <laughs> yeah. around America. Almost. Yeah. Maybe yeah, one okay. day. I'll put it together. <clears throat> it doesn't matter. I mean, it really doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, not to me, it doesn't matter. I think, <laughs> I think, you know, you got out of it what you intended to get yeah. out of it. And, and if you're talking about listening to the road, you know, you know, you just kind of listen to the road and go where, go where it takes you. Yeah, definitely. Cool, man. Well, thanks for uh, coming on. Yeah, uh, thanks so much, Patrick. Hey, it's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, I mean, I've been following you for a while and enjoy, you know, it's like your blog post said, it says something along the lines of like, I'm setting out to live like uh, an unusual lifestyle or, you know, a non-typical. Yeah, not as normal, I guess, hopefully. And I, I mean, it's something that like I watch people like you with envy a lot of times. I'm like, man, I wish I figured this stuff out. You know, I was way younger and I didn't <laughs> like, I didn't say have kids. I mean, you know, it's like, I, 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 I love my kids. I wish I did this stuff when I was younger <laughs> and then had kids. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But uh, it gives me something to, to look forward to. Yeah. Well, I think it was Ricky Gates uh, who said it, but he, he ran across America Um, but he had this great quote that kind of resonates with me is that we are all as humans, 90% the same and 10% different. And I, I, that resonates with me. Like any, like, I, I like to think that I'm pretty much just a regular person with like an, an able body. And I'm very fortunate to have that, but 
yeah, all of these have just been decisions uh, of my own choosing to to live like this. And so I don't want to be too different. I, I still want to be <laughs> like a lot of other humans too. So, well, I like to uh, showcase. I mean, uh, these different ways of uh, of living your life, and it is up to you. You know, you do. You are the captain of your own ship, right? It's something Sarah and I talk about a lot. It's this huge cog that is our economy, that is like school that pumps you out into a job, and then you get the house and the kids. And, you know, it's just like it feels like a big moving cog, and we're just like the little things stuck in it. And I think the more we can highlight people who are pursuing their passions and doing things that really make them happy, even if they don't know what the outcome is going to be, there's a lot of value in that. So I appreciate you sharing your story. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Keep uh, riding your damn bike. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. If people want to follow you on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, at underscore Tyler vision, Tyler vision. Kind That's a like great television. One. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good. And your blog is, www.tyler-vision.com. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Tyler, as we speak, is flying back to Iceland. I hope this podcast finds him well on the other side of his flight. Thanks again to Rockgeist for supporting this show. And remember to go over to rockgeist.com and check out that new wishbone and keep your full frame bag from rubbing on your crank arms. Ain't nobody got time for that. Go get you a wishbone. All right, everybody. I'm going to go take a nap. You go ride your damn bike. You load up your bike. You ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You let that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes 